Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm pleased to be speaking with Dan Ward, who spent 20 years in the Air Force and is now a senior principal systems engineer at MITRE. He's just released his third book on innovation called Lift, Innovation Lessons from Flying Machines That Almost Worked and the People Who Nearly Flew Them. Dan, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Hey, great to be here. Thanks again for the opportunity. Yeah, definitely. So your new book, Lift, it's really about the pioneers of aviation, and it seems to expand on a lot of the concepts that you had in your previous two books, FIRE and the Simplicity Cycle. And FIRE stands for Fast, Inexpensive, Restrained, and Elegant. So can you just talk about like, what's the driving thesis that threads through all of your work, and then how did that lead you to lift? Yeah, so I'm an engineer and a, and a military officer by training, and a lot of my work is about problem solving, especially solving hard problems, solving impossible problems solving problems that haven't been solved before and uh, and then com- coming up with innovative solutions so not just business as usual type problem solving but really innovative solutions to really hard problems my experience and, and my research both suggest that speed thrift and simplicity are, are the key elements to effective problem solving methods especially for this category of problem so my first two books looked at uh, the present and the future uh, and lift really goes back in time we're looking 100 150 years in the past And I found a really similar set of lessons from these absolutely bonkers flying machines from the late 1800s, the people, the things that people designed, built, launched, and crashed in the attempt to solve the really hard problem of flight at a point in time when when that problem had never been solved uh, previously. But a lot of the same behaviors, techniques, principles, and methods that were helpful in the late 1800s are equally relevant and helpful in uh, in today's world. Yeah, definitely. hear you on that one. I want to bring up a little quote here from one of the pioneers. Uh, I think it's a French name. I think it's Octave Chanute. Is that correct? Uh, Chanute. Yeah, Octave Chanute. Yeah. And he was one of these pioneers in the early years. And this kind of, when I read this from you, it was just like, yep, this is definitely how everything kind of follows through. And he said, quote, thus with small, light, simple, and inexpensive models, many experiments were made and great advances were realized in the distance flown. So I like how, you know, definitely in that early period, there was a lot of that kind of experimentation that you talk about. And that's equally relevant for today, those of us who, you know, like it's the next frontier. We're always on the frontier, so we don't know exactly where we're going. And it's nice to have these uh, models. Yeah, that, that sentence really summed up so much of my career to date, uh, even though he wrote it, you know, 1896, I believe, was when that book came out. Right. And you were brought up the point that the Wright brothers, for example, they built their aircraft for about a thousand dollars. And then there's And that includes the cost of their train ticket. The fully burdened Yeah, fully burdened cost, right? <laughs> fully burdened cost of prototyping. <laughs> and and then you had these other guys like Samuel Langley, they were spending like seventy three thousand dollars on what largely just turned out to be a failure. So can you just talk a little bit about why constraints stimulate in innovative or imaginative thinking? Yeah, I love that data point. It really undermines this whole concept of, 
hey, you know, you got to take your time and do it right. You, you, you know, you get what you pay for. So if we want to solve really hard problems, the best way to solve them is to spend a lot of time and a lot of money tackling. The data just doesn't support that assertion. Uh, and so what constraints do is constraints help take the obvious solution off the table. They force us to get more creative because we can't do our, our first inclination, which is give me more time, give me more money, and then I can fix this problem. What's interesting is that Langley in particular, who had like multiple PhDs working for him, he had several degrees, he was the head of the Smithsonian. I mean, he had government contracts. This guy had all the apparent advantages uh, that you would hope to have for, for doing really hard work. He was not able to experiment as much as Orville and Wilbur were because he was so invested in his idea, never mind that he just kept launching it directly into the Potomac. Just did not get off, uh, get off the ground. So despite all the apparent advantages, the time, the money, the resources, the government contracts, the PhD experts working for him, a pair of bicycle repairmen in Ohio, neither of whom had graduated from high school, with 173rd the cost, uh, 173rd uh, the budget of, of what Langley had, they're the ones who won. And that's a really consistent pattern as you look across the whole spectrum of you know, innovation and, and problem solving. Yeah, this reminds me of something that you kind of talk a little bit about accepting diversity of thought when it comes to technology. And I would just like you to kind of characterize, you know, how do you think government does when it comes to diversity of thought and what it actually puts money to in terms of projects and innovation? And then how would you characterize the commercial economy? It makes me think about, for example, the National Institutes of Health. I think it's something like the average age of their recipients are well into their 60s. And it's like very rare for someone 20s, 30s, up to even like 40s, whereas in the times past, you know, they would actually be making these bets on these younger people that might have a different way of thinking about some things. But that's just, I guess, age is, might be just one way of looking at diversity. But how do you think about diversity and then characterize it in government and commercial? Yeah, you know, I think as a society, we've made a lot of progress in this area of recognizing the importance and the, the value of diversity and inclusion and, and things like that. We've still got a lot of room to go, uh, but there are a lot of different dimensions of competent diversity that can help contribute to make our team smarter, to make our groups more effective and help us solve really hard problems. Uh, so I found really powerful pockets of competent diversity in government. Uh, I found them in industry, uh, you find them in academia, you find them in healthcare. And I think these pockets of dissimilarity, uh, they say that innovation happens at the intersection of dissimilarity. So when you get you know, a group of physicists and a group of musicians and a group of teachers and old people and young people and people of different colors and backgrounds and orientations and ethnicities and religions. You mix that all up together, that tends to help create an environment where creativity happens in ways that it doesn't when you have a more monolithic, more homogenous type group. And I think that's one of the reasons America is as creative and innovative as it is, because we are a country of immigrants. And we've been our country with you know, a lot of you know, five different uh, generations in the workforce right now. And there's so many layers and so many levels of diversity. So it's not just about gender or just about background or, or there's a lot of elements to this. And fortunately, like I said, we found pockets in, in government and pockets in the civilian world uh, that really value and foster diversity and then do this on purpose. Those are the ones where you find the real breakthroughs coming out. The, the real breakthroughs come when you get the outsiders and the weirdos together. And so, for example, right after 9-11, uh, I was in the intelligence community and I was working with a guy named Skunk Baxter, former guitarist for um, uh, Steely Dan and the Doobie Brothers. Uh, big old ponytail, some crazy facial hair going on. 
working with a top secret security clearance in the intelligence community, trying to solve really hard problems. And I was a young captain at the time, and it was really an amazing moment in my career to be in rooms with him and to work on projects together with him, who is not somebody you would have thought uh, when you think of a military intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he really brought an important and impactful level of diversity on several layers, several levels um, that, that helped us do better work. Yeah, there's this one part of your book that, you know, was really kind of powerful for me where you're talking about aviation pioneer. I think his name is Alphonse Panod. Alphonse Panod, oui. <laughs> another Another <laughs> French name there. And, you know, he was coming out with these ideas for aviation. And it turned out he was actually on the right technical track. But this was back in the 19th century. And a lot of his peers were kind of like ridiculing him. And then he committed suicide. But he was on the right track. And he was like trying to like push the, the needle forward. He just didn't look like what everyone else was thinking about and doing. How do you think about tolerating ideas that prob that may not be in the mainstream that are like there's not the best technical background to it or articulated plan for it to come about but you know people are working on these things and they may or may not pan out but if they do pan out there are high returns to it right yeah you know it's remarkable that when you look at aviation pioneers in the late 1800s the, the people who were building airplanes or building flying machines prior to the wright brothers uh, they had two main things in common first they all failed uh, none of them worked <laughs> uh, and second they were almost universally ridiculed, teased, and mocked. It's so tragic, it's so unnecessary, it's so destructive for people to adopt that posture in, uh, in the way they view and, and treat uh, creative folks. Um, we really, we need each other. And diversity, like I said before, diversity drives innovation. And a, a homogenous group that is, you know, homogenous uniformity makes it harder for us to solve problems. Let me say that again, homogenous uniformity makes it harder for us to solve hard problems. And so ridiculing the different only reinforces similarities in ways that, again, makes it harder for us to solve problems, which is why I'm so adamant. If, if you're soft on diversity, you're soft on national defense. Uh, and I'm stealing that phrase from uh, Maggie uh, Feldman-Pilch, who's the leader of NATSEC Girl Squad, an amazing organization everybody should be a part of. Uh, proud to be a dues-paying member of, of that group. Um, so again, if, if you're soft on diversity, you're soft on national defense. If you're soft on diversity, uh, you're soft on, on the ability to solve hard problems. Uh, and so the more we're able to embrace, encourage, foster, and seek out the differences, uh, the better we are, the smarter our teams will be, the better we'll be at, at solving hard problems. Yeah, I'm with you there. When I think about the way the government kind of distributes funds to projects, it seems like there's not a lot of that kind of diversity of thought. It's kind of like, well, it kind of has to follow these plans. It has to kind of make a lot of engineering sense in the ways that we've been doing things. Like you can't, some things are, are very difficult and there's, there may not be a scientific basis for it or even just like software applications, right? It's like, there's nothing really about the physics of the world or the engineering plan. It's just like, was this a good idea to go out and put this piece into software? Is the current process working? Maybe the software is better, maybe not. But there's also this other part of your book where you're talking about aero curves versus aeroplanes, which is kind of like the shaping of the wing. And everyone thought an aeroplane, which is like a flat wing, would have been better because it followed the ideal form that Plato kind of set out, the very Platonic deductive thinking that's going on there. You know, how did some of these people, they just like anticipated that an aero curve would perform better? They didn't have any physical data to say that that would be better. But like other people 
like a government agency, if they're going to like fund a, an aircraft project, they would probably put it into an airplane, not an aero curve, because the ideal form pointed to that direction. So how would we have ever gotten to an aeroplane yeah. in the government world? Is I guess how I'm right. I mean, the aero so, curve instead of the aeroplane. So I, I think Shanu's quote that you used earlier about small, simple experiments, that's really the heart of so much of this. It It is challenging to make investments in experiments where the outcomes are uncertain and unpredictable, where we're really plowing new ground. It's hard to do that when the amount of money we're putting into it is large. It's easy to do that when the amount of money we're putting in is small. So doing an iterative series of incremental, small, focused, inexpensive experiments, uh, that, that's, that's why I recommend that strategy, that approach. Um, whereas you know Samuel Langley, for example, he poured $73,000 into what he called his grand aerodrome, his massive aircraft that had to launch from a boat and kept just dunking right into the Potomac. Okay, so it was very hard for him to pivot. He had invested so much, he, you get caught up in that sunk cost fallacy. And we keep spending good money after gone money. Uh, and it's just hard to break out of that pattern. It's so much easier to break out of that pattern if you do what Alphonse Panon did. His experiments, he was 21 years old at the time, he did them in his backyard with some sticks and paper and twisted rubber bands. So if you've ever played with a rubber band powered airplane, yeah, this guy invented it in 1871. This toy that he invented uh, was what got the Wright brothers when they were they were like eight and nine years old. Their father brought them one of, the, one of these, they played with it and they pointed to that as why they got interested in aviation in the first place. So Panad like is directly connected with the Wrights and, and their eventual success. But his very simple, very inexpensive models gave us experimental data about what actually works. And, and that's really the key. Uh, it was it was a guess. Hey, maybe flat wings, maybe curved wings. I don't know. Well, let's build a couple simple flat wings and a couple simple curved wings and see which ones produce more lift. And it turns out there are good ways to curve a wing and there are bad ways to curve a wing. And not all curves are equal. And you have to try a lot of different curves and, form, and forms and, and functions of those wings until you come up with what we now call the, uh, the airfoil. Uh, shape, which is kind of flat on the bottom and curved on the top. But there was a big debate back in the back in the day in the late 1800s: should wings be flat or should they be curved? Uh, and this perfectly flat, like even that phrase "perfectly flat," seemed to imply some virtue uh, in flatness, uh, even though it turns out flatness was did not produce as much lift as a, an appropriately curved wing. Uh, and the best way to figure that out is experimentally. I'm an engineer. I'm all about like building little prototypes and testing them and get some real world data. Uh, and that's what Panon did. Interestingly, that's what Langley did not do. He did not do a large number of simple experiments. He did a small number of very expensive, complicated experiments. Ultimately, he learned less. I can't emphasize that enough. He learned less than what Panon learned uh, in his backyard at the ripe old age of 21. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, you said something about only have one miracle at a time when you're trying to do innovation. <laughs> makes me think about, for example, the F-117. They had, it was a brand new type of design. They used every kind of part that wasn't the airframe from somewhere else, the fly-by-wire from the F-16. They had like the environmental controls from the C-130. So they're just like, use high TRL kinds of components and everything else and just do one thing. Whereas like the DDG-1000 might be the perfect example of, let's just revolutionize everything at the same time. And there's like dozens of things right. that they needed to go out on at the same time. And, and it, it's so unscientific to introduce a whole lot of changes all at once. It's much more scientific to say, we're only going to introduce one change at a time. We're only going to hope for one real breakthrough at a time. Because if we're only changing one thing at a time, then we get cause and effect. We get better understanding of, did this change make it better or did it make it worse? Uh, and so, yeah, I'm all about 
taking existing mature technologies and putting them together in a new and interesting way as a, as a way to quickly build low cost, simple experiments that get us some validated data that inform my next series of simple experiments. I'm curious if you've read some of uh, Oliver Williamson, because it's all like we're talking about simple, more iterative types of um, technical innovations. And that from the government's point of view and how it contracts out, that means smaller modular types of contracts or what Oliver Williamson, who later became a Nobel Prize winning economist, he calls it task partitioning. So do you think dividing large projects into these incremental tasks, like what kind of effects does that have on contracting? Why is it that the government seems to always want to put everything into these huge projects where there's a lead systems integrator? Let's just put out a five to 10 year development program in one contract. How does that contract system work and how does that interact with your ideas on simple, fast, cheap? It it, it is puzzling because uh, the interesting thing is that modular contracting is the government's preferred strategy uh, according to FAR Part 39. Modular architectures, similarly, or the the MOSA approach, the Modular Open System Architecture approach, is also endorsed and prescribed in loads of policies and regulations, more than I could even quote. So the question in my mind is, why do practitioners continue to favor these big, monolithic, massive programs and contracts and system architectures? Why do we take that approach when the policy itself very explicitly has a preference for modular contracting, modular system architectures. If you haven't read FAR Part 39, everybody should go out and read FAR Part 39. It's it's well-written, it's clear, and it's one of those beautiful cases, and and I I use that word deliberately, beautiful cases where a federal acquisition regulation not only recommends what to do, and 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 it's good advice, but it explains why you should do it. Uh, It says, look, taking this approach, this modular approach, uh, it's easier to manage, you get better results, and, and it like goes into all the, all the benefits of taking this approach. So why does practice not line up with policy? It's kind of maddening. I think there's a lot of reasons for it. Some of it's ignorance. You know, if people haven't read FAR Part 39, if they don't know what it says, then it's hard to comply. Uh, some of it, though, is folklore about risk. Uh, we, we have this belief, completely unsupported by data, by the way, uh, but we have this belief that we're going to minimize risk by maximizing oversight. We're going to minimize risk by maximizing redundancy, maximizing control. Uh, These things that we think are going to make our program less risky actually make them more risky. Uh, And I say that based on my 20 plus years experience in Air Force acquisitions, uh, as well as my more academic research into this field, looking at the data, that the programs that have the most oversight, the most redundancy, the most control, the most monolithic, massive type projects are the ones that fail the most often. Uh, the ones that succeed the most often are small, fast, modular. Uh, again, the data is just overwhelmingly consistent. So is this feasible to do this? Absolutely. The policy allows it, and there's plenty of precedent. Uh, so I, I like to call what I, I talk about what I call my three Ps, policy, precedent, and practices. Uh, so the first P says, you know, what does the policy say? And in this case, policy says do modular. The precedent is, okay, has this been done before? Yes, here are some examples of modular contracting, modular architectures, that kind of thing. And then the third is the practices. What are the specific behaviors and activities that we do to put this into practice? Uh, and you'll find a lot of those documented in, in my books. So if we can put all three in the all three Ps on the table, policy says we can do it, it has been done before, and here's some advice on how to how to actually do it. Uh, boy, that really helps increase the, the adoption rate. Uh, it doesn't make it per- perfect, but it helps increase the adoption rate of these genuinely good practices. I hear you on a 
FAR 39, but it makes me think that, well, okay, I want this project to be agile or iterative, and I want my contract to be agile or iterative, but then you're kind of stuck in this water agile fall overarching process. So you have the requirements process, years of kind of definition going in into the front end, and then you have the budget process where you outline the program plan, you have to justify it through layers of bureaucracy, and then the funds are specified to that project plan, and then you'd have the milestone reviews that put into detail that plan. So it seems like, well, I've already done all of this, right? Why break it up when all the proposals and all of the front end work is already defined where it's going to go? right? Everything else is waterfall. How am I just going to throw in an agile piece right in the middle of that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think like programs fail at the beginning uh, and then we often don't discover that they failed until the end. Uh, And so part of of why that happens is we we set ourselves up for failure by establishing these waterfall methods and practices early on. And then we try and, you know, staple on a little bit of agile, you know, down the road. So we really need to begin the beginning and bake in our systems, our processes, and our, our organizations in such a way to adopt those agile methods from the start. And, and, and that can be done if we decide to do it. <laughs> so the sooner we begin applying these, these principles and practices that I write about and, and really in all three of my books, uh, the more impactful they can. Having said that, within any given program, as long as there are still decisions to be made, then we have opportunities to make those decisions well make those decisions in the direction of speed, thrift, and simplicity, for example. Um, but the, the funny thing about Waterfall is that the, the very first description of the Waterfall software development method comes from a 1970 paper by a guy named Royce. It's a terrific paper, and in that paper, he calls Waterfall a high-risk approach that has never been found to work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm not an absolute absolutist about anything. I'm not a purist about anything, but I really draw the line on waterfall. I, I think it's the equivalent of gluing feathers onto your wings and flapping them as hard as you can as a way to fly. It's it's just, it's gluing feathers onto your wings and flapping them as a way to fly. It makes a certain amount of sense. We see birds do that, but that has never been the way that any human being has ever flown. Uh, similarly, the waterfall approach makes a certain amount of logical sense if you just sort of read about it. But as soon as you start doing it, you find out it is a high-risk proposition that has never been found to work. Uh, and we've known that for, oh my goodness, 50 years now. So I think it's about time we can stop doing the whole waterfall thing. Uh, because over the past 50 years, we have not found very many examples of a waterfall working any better than it did in, in the 1970s. Yeah, the 1970 Winston Roy's paper, Managing the Development of Large Software Systems, he says, quote, I believe in this concept, but the implementation described above is risky and invites failure. He basically goes on to recommend a pilot model, and you have to do it twice or expect up to 100% overrun in schedule and cost. <laughs> but, and, and that's, risky and, that's, and invites failure, and you should expect a 100% overrun in cost. I mean, he was right. <laughs> that's just a, a great prediction predicting the future of, of how those things go. So... We often hear about agile development and continuous release of capability, but you know, what about the minimally viable product, the MVP? Does the architecture and the MVP kind of require something that looks like a waterfall approach? I've talked to one guy, he basically says like, no, I just sit there for months and I think about something and then in two days I just code it right up and I have something and I don't like just iter- just like start iterating just right out the bat. Like what right. what do you think about like the that waterfall at the front end or like can you use iterative things there as well? Yes, yeah, so I, I generally find that for my first attempt of anything, there is a zero percent chance that I get it that I get it one hundred percent right, uh, no matter how long I've sat and stared at the wall and thought about it. 
the best way to test whether an idea or an architecture or a proposal or a concept is valid, uh, really the only way to test whether it's valid is to put it out in the world and see if it's valid. Does this get me the results I'm looking for, whether we're talking about software, uh, wings, you know, trying to produce lift, trying to control the, the maintain stability of an aircraft in flight. You know, we can do doodles and sketches and, and imagine things and get all hypothetical as much as we'd like. But until you put it out into the, into the world, you really don't know what, what we're dealing with. Uh, it's possible that some people get things perfectly right on the first try. I think that's rare. I wouldn't count on that. So, so no, again, I think generally um, your best bet is to do what Alphonse Panon did, uh, an iterative cycle of incremental, small, simple experiments focused on one aspect of the problem at a time. So with Panad, he wasn't trying to build like the lightest, most powerful engine. He wasn't trying to solve the problem of control. He was trying to answer the question, hey, should the wings be towards the nose or towards the tail or sort of in the middle of the fuselage? Let's answer that question first. Then should the wings be curved or should they be flat? Okay, let's answer that question next. And then, you know, and then step by step, chipping away at this massive problem of how do you build a flying machine, but, but one step at a time, one iteration at a time, again, as opposed to what Samuel Langley did, Hey, let's build a grand aerodrome, never having established a you know a smaller scale uh, model that that works. So let's do the big one first and put a person in it, and the poor pilot just kept uh, going for a swing. You know, it's interesting to think about experimenting with one thing at a time. But does that iterative small approach, where you're just learning these little things about one thing or another, does that only work for disruptive innovation? Like if I'm on a sustaining innovation where I have you know, large companies, they've been doing this while the airplane right now, for example, maybe you, you don't do, you do something a little bit different. Whereas if you're in kind of an uncharted territory, like say a hypersonic missile, you might want to be doing all these rapid iterative experiments just to see, Hey, I just don't even really know where this thing might be going. I have some clues. I have some experiments, but there might be a better way to get this done if I do something radically different. So how do you think about that disruptive versus the sustaining types of innovation and how this, you know, fast, cheap, inexpensive, iterative restraint kind of thing goes goes with that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, two main threads uh, popped into my head as you're talking about that. Uh, first is that we don't do this by ourselves. Uh, we mentioned Octave Schnute at the beginning. One of his great contributions, one of his great gifts to the world and the development of aviation was that he was a connector. Uh, he reached out to anybody who was doing anything at all in the field of trying to build a flying machine in the late 1800s. He, he knew who those people were. He had corresponded with them. He met with them. And he sort of aggregated their, their lessons, whatever they were willing to share, uh, and helped identify you know, who's on the right path, who's on the wrong path. So you know, he was able to um, build that community, build that network. And, and that's a really important piece of all of this. Um, but you, there's a really important point there about disruptive innovation versus sustaining innovation. Uh, both are important, and I think both can be done using the same kind of method. Uh, so the Navy, for example, with their Virginia-class submarine program, a couple of years back made a lot of headlines when they announced that they were replacing their $39,000 periscope controller with a $30 Xbox controller. So this is a $2 billion nuclear-powered submarine that is in operations today. And somebody, uh, I would love to meet, you know, the, the person who came up with this idea. Well, let me get even more specific about this. I would love to meet the junior enlisted person who suggested this, uh, this idea, because I'm sure that's, that's how this came about. But somebody says, hey, what's the worst thing about this submarine? And universally, this, so I'd love to know who asked that question. So what's the worst thing about this submarine? And everybody says, oh, the periscope controller. It's heavy, it's clunky, it's hard to learn, hard to maintain. 
you know, gosh, I wish we had a better way of doing this. And then somebody suggested, and again, I think this is probably a junior sailor came in and said, you know, an Xbox controller would do just fine. And so replacing a $39,000 piece of equipment with a $30 piece of equipment, which requires no training because everybody knows how to use it already. You can get a, 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 a spare part at, part at any port in the world. And, it's, and it performs better as it turns out. You get better results by using this less expensive piece of hardware. So what do they do? They said, all right, so on one sub, we're going to remove the expensive, complicated, hard to use piece. We're going to swap in the, the Xbox controller. We're going to do an experiment. And guess what? If this doesn't work, well, what do we do? Well, we put the big, the $39,000, we put the original controller back on. So it was, it was a reversible, it was a, it was a two-way door, a reversible experiment. This is the type of sustaining innovation that's making an existing capability better, as opposed to a disruptive innovation, which, which is a whole different animal. And so you can do this kind of thing even in a military environment with an operational system. Uh, and when it did work and they said, oh, actually this is better and it's cheaper and it saves money and it saves time on training and all these benefits, they said, all right, now let's equip the rest of the fleet with this. So they've been going through the process of, uh, you know, any new, <laughs> any new sub that gets built, you know, has this one, has the Xbox controller from day one. And at the previous ones, hey, they're, they're going through and doing the, the swap out to replace the worse expensive capability with the better, cheaper capability. Yeah, one of the things that makes me think about it is the idea of just incremental innovation. So it's like we're making decisions as we get more information as the need for decisions arises rather than this kind of long range. I'm just going to like make up the whole plan now and then go execute over a long period of time where I'm just turning those that plan into orders for purchase for hire for just execution. But I think a lot of people usually just have a different way of thinking about that kind of way of thought. They're like, oh, well, that just means it's incremental advances like we've been doing on the F-16 and we're at the block, whatever. You're not really going anywhere and you're not being transformative. But I don't think of the dichotomy necessarily between incremental and transformative as much as between like incremental and then long range fixed planning. Because incrementalism, I think is what you're saying, incremental decision-making leads to transformations, whether it's on a sustaining platform or on a disruptive thing. Absolutely. I like to say that the, the tactical ability to quickly deliver advanced new systems capabilities, innovations, the tactical ability to solve today's problems is itself a strategic capability. If I can do this today and then I do it again tomorrow, you know, and I do it again every day for the next year, I will have made, you know, my, my team and I will have made more progress than if we say we're going to do nothing unless it's big. We're going to do nothing unless we've really thought the whole thing all the way through. You know, and we're going to do nothing unless we planned it and controlled it and predicted it. Uh, and that emphasis on planning, controlling, and predicting tends to, again, not have a very good track record in delivering the real impactful, the real, you know, war-winning type capabilities, you know, the real operational breakthroughs. Uh, those tend to be the result of that cumulative effect of a million uh, small innovations, uh, a million small in the sense of it's a $30 piece of equipment, uh, not small in the sense of it really made their lives better on those submarines. And I've never been on a submarine, but boy, I got to figure anything you can do to make a submariner's life better, uh, that, that's got to be a good thing. I think the the reason that we like to go towards the plan, predict, and control is kind of like it creates a baseline. And from that baseline, then I can measure performance and hold people accountable in one kind of measurement system. It's kind of hard, I guess, with that incrementalism where, where I take an Xbox controller to control the periscope. It's like, 
Well, what's a general measure for that? Like, I well, I can measure it after the fact. I couldn't have known what the correct measure would be for that nuanced thing was before the fact, and that I should be measuring it at all. Yeah, yeah, we get we get tied up in measurements a lot. Um, a while back, I was part of a, a study with the National Academy of Sciences uh, that the Air Force had commissioned to look at how do we help foster more innovation within the Air Force um, acquisition community, and the the report is, has been publicly published and it's you know uh, freely available. You can go over to National Academy of Sciences website and download the whole report. And one of our findings, I think there were six or seven core findings, uh, and one of them, and this is the most consistent thing we got from all the interviews that we did, is that metrics, the, that there is no single metric for uh, you know measuring innovation. Uh, and that instituting a metrics system that's not well thought out uh, can actually be counterproductive and one, one individual even said it's better to have no metrics at all than to have bad metrics because bad metrics point us in the direction of, of gaming the system, making bad decisions. And although it creates sort of the illusion of control, the illusion of awareness, the illusion of predictability, but it may not actually be helping us solve the hard problems we're trying to solve. What do you think about some of the metrics that are being proposed, particularly in the software world, for example, uh, mean time to repair or you know, how fast they're getting new iteration into production. They're a little bit different because they're not tied to a technical baseline where you have cost and schedule, but they're a different type of after-the-fact output metric or an outcomes metric. Do you think those are a little bit closer? Like, how we still need to measure things. How do we measure things in this incremental world where we're not laying a long-range plan? Yeah, I think, interestingly, the same behavior I was talking about before applies to metrics as well. The best approach to metrics that I've ever come across is to treat metrics experimentally. For a period of time, let's measure these things and see if those measurements help inform good decisions and get us better results. Rather than locking into, this is our metrics that we will you know, live with forever and ever, amen, and these are the metrics that will guide all our decision making. Like, hey, let's, let's try an experiment with metrics. For the next month, we're going to measure this. At the end of the month, we'll say, are those measures relevant? Are they timely? Are they informative? Do they help drive decision-making? Do they help you know, make the, the output better? Uh, and if not, then pivot and try some other kind of metrics. So again, that iterative, incremental, open-handed approach to, uh, to metrics is really just uh, applying that same experimental method, that same scientific method that, that we've been talking about through the whole uh, interview. And again, I think the scientific method of doing experiments and collecting validated data that's the only way I know to, <laughs> to get good results and to solve hard problems. And metrics is definitely a, uh, which means it's right for doing experiments. It seems that you can't really disaggregate some of this just from like workforce training and technical knowledge that used to, you know, like one of the things I believe has been a trend over the long run from the World War II seems to be the kind of degradation of in-house technical talent that used to reside within the military services. And we're starting to see that come back now, I think, in a, in a large way. It wasn't just, oh, well, let's just do depot. Because that's, I mean, depot work is important, but it's not the same kind of, we're building new components and we're actually doing the systems engineering on these major programs. But we're seeing that kind of coming back with some of the software factories and 3D printing and some of that. But you had this nice little part where it seems that you know, in order to know whether I should make this contract or I should cut the contract or this thing actually brought value to the government, you know, you need to have that nuanced technical knowledge. And it only comes when you can have lots of experience over time where you're basically gathering um, data points and experience. And you had a nice quote here from Chanute where he was basically cataloging 
a lot of the early aviation designs. And he had this kind of uncanny ability to kind of foresee what designs would be more feasible than the other designs. And he wrote how this came from, quote, this came from his deep familiarity with a wide variety of proposals. If we want to develop a similar ability in our field, we should take a similar approach and make a determined effort to collect, cultivate, and study failure. So we need to kind of have these failures, these kind of like backlog of experiences where we're not just doing one program over 20 years and then we, can, we don't have anything to compare it to. So how do you think about workforce training as an avenue towards building metrics, making decisions where you're not relying on process, cost data, and other things that we rely on today? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, the, the, the Lyft book is really all about studying failure. Uh, what does it look like to study failure? How do you study failure? Uh, why do we study failure? And then some techniques and methods for, for doing that and a few examples of, of what it looks like in practice. And so I think that can be applied to how we do our training. You know, all too often we set up metrics, we set up training, we set up acquisition plans or budgets or, you know, whatever it is we're making. And we say, okay, now just comply with this predetermined, predefined thing. Uh, and we don't really step back and, and analyze it and say, well, did it work? Did it achieve the objectives we set out to achieve? And really, we do one of two things when we when we fail. We either <laughs> bury it and forget that it ever happened, or we just keep doing it anyway and think, well, next time it's going to be different. Next time it's going to be different. And we're missing that third option. And the third option is to call it a failure, like use that word and say, hey, this did not work, but we can learn something from it. Um, and and so one of the things my team does is, is we uh, we celebrate failures with failure cake where like where we put in a proposal to get some funding or we, we propose doing something or we, we do an experiment and we just don't get the results we wanted. Uh, then we go out and we buy a cake and we usually have the, the bakery write like congratulations on your failure or studying your failure or just you failed. Um, and we bring it back to the office back when we could all be in the same room together and, and we eat the cake and we discuss like, hey, what did we attempt? What did we accomplish? Why didn't this work out in a friendly, collaborative, collegial kind of way? You know, there's no blame. There's no moping. I mean, you're eating cake. It can't be it can't be too mopey. And inevitably, our cake is too big for us to eat ourselves. So then we bring it into the hallway and we share it with the people around us. And they're like, oh, is it somebody's birthday? And we say, no, this is a failure cake. We tried this thing. It didn't work out. And, and we're, we're learning from this experience. Uh, and so doing that openly, doing it transparently has just been a delightful and informative experience and an informative practice. And so I really encourage uh, everybody to, to do that with your teams. Uh, and a variation on the failure cake is just get a great big cake. Again, once we're able to be in the same room together, we put a cake in the uh, cafeteria of our headquarters company. And we just put up a little whiteboard and says, write down a failure that you experience on a little yellow sticky, stick that on the whiteboard and we'll give you a piece of cake. So tell us a failure, you get some cake. And some of them were funny, some of them were poignant, but we just had these amazing conversations as people who thought about failure and studied failure and discussed it. And inevitably what we find is that failure is only the beginning. It's just the first step. Uh, and it actually produces learning and it produces growth and it actually ends up not being as bad as uh, as it might have felt at the time, especially if there's cake involved. <laughs> so here's a two-part question for you. You know, why is it that the attitude of failure isn't an option? The thing that seemed to take us to the moon, right? Why do you say that leads to vanilla ideas? I said that the guy who coined that term failure is not an option has since very publicly said he regrets that phrase. <laughs> um, failure is always an option. Failure is always possible. You know, and this idea that failure is not an option tends to uh, make us more risk averse, less likely to experiment and try something new. Because if we're not allowed to fail, if we're not allowed to use that word, you know, no, no dropping that F-bomb, 
then we're, we're going to play it safe because failure is not an option. I, I must therefore only do what I can predict and control and can guarantee uh, the outcomes on. And then that gets really old and really stale really fast. When failure is not, um, well, so let me put it this way. <laughs> if you have like a, a startup, for example, and let's just say I know 50% of startups fail or more than 50% in this sector are, are likely to never go anywhere or make a success out of it. In order to, for me to, to attract talent and to get people involved in this, I basically have to make them believe it's not going to fail, right? Like, oh, this thing's going right. to be the next thing that, that does it all and we're not going to fail. So is there a balance between that kind of like, well, first, government might want to take a portfolio view and they're going to say, okay, fine, I should be able to accept failure. There's no reason from that perspective that you shouldn't be failure accepting. But like when you're actually on the ground and you're selecting projects and teams, like don't you need to have that failure isn't an option, we're going to do it at any cost and we're going to like change the world kind of mindset? Or is it like in order to get there, we're going to fail, right? But we're going to right. get there anyway, right? So how do you right. think about that? Yes, I, I definitely describe myself as a wild-eyed optimist, and perhaps this is uh, uh, paradoxically, I also believe failure is inevitable, uh, and I hold both of those positions at the same time. So yeah, anytime I jump into something, I'm like, this is going to be great, this is going to be awesome, of course I believe it's going to succeed, and, and we need those visionary leaders and thinkers and, and talkers who will you know, really cast a good, compelling vision, and at the same time recognize that, hey, you know, this, this might not work, or it might work. Uh, so, you know, like a, an aviation pioneer strapping wings onto their shoulders and jumping off a cliff, you know, you got you only do that if you're pretty sure it's going to work. <laughs> yeah. uh, so the way you, you get to that point is having done all the experiments previous. So, you know, when you go into those high risk situations where, you know, you're wily kind of strapping a rocket to your back, you know, hopefully you've done the, the homework and done the, the work in advance to get you to the point where you have genuine confidence that's based on data, based on earlier experiments. You know, we want to kind of avoid making those fatal mistakes, making the mistake you can only make once, but also being willing to take a step when a positive outcome is not necessarily guaranteed. So it's that mix of, of realism, recognition that failure is always an option, that failure is inevitable, but also, hey, that, that the world can be changed and, and things can be different, can be better. And holding both of those positions, uh, it, it feels a bit of a, of a paradox, but I think that's also sort of the way the world works and, and you yeah. need to do a little bit of both. Uh, in your book, you brought up this uh, Museum of Failed Products in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Did you actually go visit that? Oh, I wish. Uh, I, I did not. Uh, only in my imagination. <laughs> uh, so one of the things that you brought up, I'm a big fan of Nassim Taleb, his work, especially anti-fragility. If, if our audience hasn't read Anti-Fragile, I would recommend that book. But one of his points there is that if you're going to fail, fail small, and that actually improves you. Like if I'm working out, I'm breaking things down, but it makes me stronger. Um, and similarly, if I fail on a project and it's small, I can recover from that, learn something and do something else. But if I go for this one big project and it's a big failure, then that kills you, right? So if I jump from three feet, nothing happens. But if I jump from 30 feet, I die. So there's a nonlinear kind of property going on there. Uh, so can you just talk about a little bit, how do you think about anti-fragility and how does that work with respect to innovation and government programming of different kinds of uh, projects? Yeah, I love that term. So anti-fragile refers to things that get stronger in response to stress or stronger in response to a strain, uh, as opposed to fragile things like a teacup. If you take a teacup and you subject it to stress or strain, it's going to break. 
going to break catastrophically. You can no longer drink tea from the teacup because it's busted. So things and muscles are a great example. Your muscles get stronger when you subject them to strain. Uh, that doesn't mean you go off and you run a marathon on your first day of ever working out. Uh, you do it incrementally. You build up and you run a little bit today and a little farther tomorrow, and eventually you can do that, that marathon. Uh, so in, in our world, you know, any kind of prediction, those tend to get increasingly fragile the farther out we're looking. Uh, so regardless of what Asimov said in his uh, foundation trilogy, you know, we can't predict the future with great certainty uh, over the long haul. Um, so we should be prepared to be surprised. So what I like to say is the future will be surprising. The fact that the future will be surprising should not surprise us. So we should be prepared to be surprised. And, and there are, are ways to do that in our budgets. There are ways to do that in our program plans, in our system architectures, both to be surprised by successes and failures. And yeah, so uh, I also talk about two kinds of failure, optimal failure and epic failure. So an optimal failure costs you a little and teaches you a lot. An epic failure costs you a lot and teaches you a little. So I say failure is inevitable. You can't avoid all failure, but we can influence the direction in which we fail. By the way we set up our programs, by the way we posture our, our systems and our, our efforts, we can set it up so that we fail. You know, when we do fail, it costs us a little and teaches us a lot. That's what Panad did with his experiments in his backyard. Or Samuel Langley, his grand aerodrome only fails one way. It only fails epic. It costs you a lot and teaches you very little, uh, in part because it's strewn all across the Potomac or is at the bottom of the Potomac. You know, uh, and, and it's just so much harder to pivot and harder to try a different configuration because he had invested so much into it. So uh, again, I just find that uh, you know, failure is inevitable. There is such thing as an optimal failure where our exposure to loss is, is minimized, the opportunity for learning is maximized, uh, and, and we can set ourselves up for that type of failure um, you know, when, we, when we do encounter those. Can you just dive in a little bit more on that? One of the things it seems like in order to learn, you have to have relevant comparisons. If I only am doing one thing, how do I know that was a failure or just wasn't really hard or something like that? So is yep. competition one of the things? Like, how do you how do you think about specifically, what do I do in my program planning and what would the government do to kind of take advantage of this? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. I think as a general rule, you want to take big things and chunk them up into small things, whether that's a big contract or a big system or a big, you know, whatever. So any big thing, make it make it small. Portfolios of programs are better than, you know, a large single program. So I like a large portfolio of, of lots of small programs as opposed to a small portfolio with lots of big programs. So from the government perspective, uh, again, in keeping with FAR Part 39 and, and other formal policies and regs, uh, that's the approach. But a general rule that anybody can apply, whether you're government or industry, whether you're a, a junior engineer or a, a senior executive, you know, whether you're doing software, hardware, or you know, both, for the decisions that you get to make, for the problems that you get to solve, if you kind of grab the stick and move in the direction of speed, thrift, and simplicity, you tend to get better results than if you're grabbing the stick and moving in the direction of, you know, slow, expensive, and complicated. Uh, so whether you're writing a document, creating a PowerPoint slide, uh, writing some code, drafting your program plan, making your budget, for whatever decision you make, we, we tend to find ourselves in situations where we're choosing between alternatives that cost a little more or an alternative that costs a little less. Pick the one that costs a little less. One that goes a little faster, one that's a little slower, yeah, pick the one that goes a little faster. Uh, one that's a little more complicated or one that's a little simpler. As a general rule, pick the one that's simpler. And so across the whole spectrum of decision-making from requirements to process to architectures to documentation to 
organizational structures, if we move in the direction of speed, thrift, and simplicity, uh, that seems to be uh, the closest I can get to a, a universal formula of good decision-making for solving really hard problems. So if I break things down into smaller chunks and then move along incrementally and decide as the, the need arises, how those things will kind of come back together into major systems, you know, would Congress get along with that? You know, it seems like how can they follow 10,000 different moving things and then some are canceling and some are starting and some are getting ramped up and would Congress go along with such an idea or does it kind of like suit their need that they, in order for them to kind of grasp what's going on in the Department of Defense, they need these larger program elements that kind of are self-contained, stovepiped. Yeah, I mean, so the nice thing is that when you get small enough, you sort of stay appropriately below reporting thresholds uh, so that like Congress doesn't care if you're only going to spend $10 on something. That's not something that gets, needs to get reported up. So I think we're not hiding anything. We're not being sneaky or underhanded. We're not trying to you know, subvert any oversight. But by taking your individual programs at a, at a low enough level, they just require uh, and, and they get uh, less bureaucratic oversight and, and, and less uh, attention. Um, it's also just at the more human scale. Uh, and then there's also what they call modern portfolio theory. So portfolio management techniques, um, Harry Markowitz, I guess, was the guy who, who coined the term uh, modern portfolio theory, won the Nobel Prize uh, for his work in economics. And so if we kind of come in and say, we're going to use a modern portfolio theory approach based on Nobel Prize winning economics, that this is a sound approach to doing this work, it's really hard to argue with that and say, well, no, we would rather you do one big massive monolithic thing. No, but the FAR Part 39 says we're supposed to do modular. Yeah, I know it says that. We would rather you do the big massive thing because it's easier for us to over. The, the supposed efficiencies of scale that, are, that were supposed to come along with these big, massive, monolithic efforts, uh, they never quite pan out. Um, so if we genuinely are serious about doing you know, defense acquisition or government acquisition well, then speed, thrift, and simplicity, turning big things into a large quantity of small things, taking this modern portfolio approach, I think is, is a sound, defensible, reportable approach that, that you know, does, in fact, align with you know, what I've heard from industry, people from a number of different companies is, yeah, we would like to do it this way. Uh, and when I had a chance to actually uh, testify in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee a couple of years back, I, I laid out a lot of what we're talking about here and, and had a lot of head nods. Um, Senator McCain, uh, uh, rest in peace, was, was there and, and you know, he and, and his Senate Armed Services Committee uh, colleagues uh, we're all seem very supportive of, of this type of thing. Obviously, it's a big ship. You know, it takes a long time to, to get things to shift. But short answer to your question is, yeah, I think Congress would get on board with this. Uh, again, it's hard to argue with success because this does get you better results faster. Yeah, it seems almost like we need a large conceptual change in how people approach things. It's almost like an ideological change because, you know, back in the 40s and the early 50s, we had all these small modular projects that are moving quickly and that the complaint from the top was no one's coordinating this thing someone like how do we know we're going to get the optimal outcome if no one's in charge and no one's like coordinating this plan so the research and development board was supposed to be in charge of making sure that you get rid of the duplications the overlaps that you're optimizing the program portfolio and then they found oh well whenever these uh things get reported they're all reported in different units and by the time I get it, half of them are canceled. And so they were just like, what do I do with this? And they basically slowed down the whole process over time in order to put that control on. Yeah. And so this is where one of the, the principles of system engineering comes in, that you can't change just one thing. 
anything you change within a large system has ripple effects. And so we can't change just one aspect of this, leave the rest of it the same and expect it to work well. That there would have to be some changes in, in metrics and in how things are reported and, and managed. But you, you really touched on something, I think at the heart of a lot of this, there's still that desire for control, that desire for predictability, that desire for you know uniformity of it all. Hey, wait, these are all different. Well, yeah, they're supposed to be different. Hey, you couldn't predict what's gonna happen. Well, no, we can't predict what's gonna happen. You wouldn't want me to predict what's gonna happen. Um, because any predictions I make are going to be fragile, the farther out we go in particular, but this is reliable, if not predictable. So the results, you can count on them, even though I can't always tell you exactly what the, the end result is going to look like a year from now or five years from now. And so that reliability versus predictability, uh, and turns out the other way isn't very predictable either. No predictions are good. Predictions come in two categories, either they're lucky or they're lousy. They're, they're not good. <laughs> So again, we look at the way things are sort of business as usual, does not have a very good record of predictability, and we should put that data on the table as well. So there can be sort of a false, um, false dichotomy here of saying, you know, oh no, you can't make it small, you can't make it innovative, you can't do it, because then it's hard to predict. Well, are we any good at predicting now? We're not. Oh, is this not going to cost more? Well, how are our obligations, how are our um, budget overruns and our uh, you know, schedule delays working out today? with big, expensive, complicated systems. Those tend to cost more, take longer, and do less than promised. So it's not as if the, the standard status quo uh, type approach is has a great track record of being correct and accurate in their predictions and their controls. So with the other way, we at least get good results. With the prediction part, it, one of the things that I've read was that, oh, well, in the 50s, we had like a 200% error on average. And, and now it's like lower. But one of the things it seems that it's also we bake in a lot of co- like much higher cost into the baseline and all this kinds of stuff. So it's like whenever I hear people talk about cost growth, it's, it's the wrong metric, it seems like, because, you know, the underlying baseline cost is just getting higher and higher and higher and higher. And the escalation underlying that is really the problem is not necessarily cost growth, potentially. But you, you actually had a very interesting um, recommendation that. It's surprising probably to a lot of people, but you said in FIRE, your book, that was your first book, if a project grows more than 15%, cut it, basically, was the was the idea. So can you explain the rationale behind that? And why is it so difficult to really cancel these projects? Yeah, yeah. So I call it the Clark Rule, which was based on a NASA satellite that was developed in the in the 90s, um, that having exceeded 15% of, uh, of its budget, having exceeded or cost growth exceeded 15%, the Clark satellite was was canceled. The rationale of this principle or this practice was to prevent out-of-control cost overruns, uh, where we end up trying to solve problems by spending more money. My program is, is having problems. Let's just spend more money. Oh, we're over budget. Um, let's solve that over budget situation by spending more money and spending more time. Uh, it, it, it just doesn't work. Now, that can be hard to, to turn off. It can be hard to cancel a program, uh, but it gets so much easier if we plan for it. So what NASA did with Clark was brilliant. They put a clause in the contract from day one. This was always part of the plan. If the program's cost exceeds cost growth exceeds 15%, NASA reserves the option, not the obligation necessarily, but the option to terminate the program. Um, so contemporary res- reports uh, in, the, in the papers uh, about that program said the long anticipated cancellation has finally been announced. You know, there, there was not a lot of moaning and wailing and national teeth. People saw this coming. They knew from day one, if your cost growth gets too big, we're gonna, we have the option to stop. Uh, and Including that clause in every contract should be standard. 
uh, it's really easy to, to put a clause into a contract on day one and say, look, we really mean it. We want to, uh, again, on the government side, maintain the option to terminate the contract if cost growth gets too high. And, that, and that's really key, because it? it's not just about, hey, if, if you're 15.1%, we're going we're gonna to cancel it. They were actually on track to hit 22% uh, before, before it was all over. You know, because sometimes there are reasons where that a little bit of cost growth is, is okay. You know, hey, it was so successful, we're going to buy 10 more copies of the thing than we had originally planned. Great. Well, let's not force ourselves to, to cancel that. But if the cost growth is not aligned with increased value, then, then yeah, we should have the option. Um, and again, by putting that into the contract, it just makes it so much easier. Nobody's surprised. Nobody's shocked. Uh, in contrast, other programs that did get canceled where they didn't have that kind of clause, like literally the day before these programs get canceled, somebody stands up and says, hey, we're, we're doing fine. Everything's going to be great. And then the next day, oh, no, we're actually we're terminated. You know, we saw that coming. And then there was all the wailing and gnashing of teeth uh, as we kind of sorted through all of that. Van, what's next for you? Or like what kind of outstanding problems, you know, needs more attention from people? Yeah, boy. Um, so the, the lift book is still fairly new. So I haven't quite got my brain into entirely what's next. But obviously the COVID-19 situation is, is top of mind for a lot of, uh, a lot of us. So working on like virtual collaboration techniques, uh, as well as what can some of these uh, experimental and innovation methods do in this other domain, this this medical domain, this this idea of you know a pandemic response, uh, which has not been something that I've been part of in the past. My my area of expertise is like space and aviation, military operations, defense acquisitions, cybersecurity, medical pandemic has never been in my uh, wheelhouse at all. But trying to figure out how can I take things what I know and, and the skills that I have from this other domains and bring them into this new domain. Um, that's probably the big problem I'm tackling next. And the big question is, you know, how can we help country and the world uh, respond to this in a way that, that sort of minimizes the, the pain and the suffering and the, uh, the impact of something like COVID-19? Because this is probably not the last pandemic where, uh, you know, it's ever going to happen, unfortunately. His new book is called Lift, Innovation Lessons from Flying Machines That Almost Worked and the People Who Nearly Flew Them. And his previous two books were Fire and Simplicity Cycle. Dan Ward, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thank you so much. This was a blast. I really appreciate the chance to be on your show. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.